Good morning, church. Hey, wait, it's a lot better than that. Let's try it again. Good morning, church. This morning, you're going to have to tolerate the old gray. Uh, Todd and his family are in New York City. He is encouraging a church that he ministered to and helped plant years ago, and I know he's going to do a fascinating, incredible job and bring a lot of energy to the church there. This is a Memorial Day weekend. It's a time to, to think, to ponder, to praise God for sacrifices that have been made. Several years ago, whenever I was preaching in East Texas, I was invited to come to Washington and listen to a bunch of senators and congressmen talk about social justice. And I traveled there with a dear friend of mine, a wealthy guy. His name was Hutch. And we would attend the lectures in the daytime, and then in the evening there would be a banquet. After one banquet, he, he said, I've got a limo out here, and we're going to go to some of the war memorials. Have you ever been? I said, man, I, I've barely been out of Texas. And so limousine pulled up. We headed out. The first one we visited was a Vietnam memorial. It's around 9 o'clock. It's cold. I'll never forget standing there looking at that black, long, granite obelisk with the names of almost 60,000 men who gave their lives in Vietnam. I was stunned at that hour of the night watching some of the veterans there Amputees in wheelchairs with their hands on the wall, still remembering their friends. The flowers that lined the way. And as I stood there, these old warriors stood there like, like this is sacred turf. They are lone sentinels guarding the memories of the heroism of those who prayed and played for freedom. We left that memorial the fog began to set in. We made our way down to the Korean Memorial. And as we made our way through the fog, suddenly out of nowhere, there were those bronze statues of warriors from Korea. And if you stood there long enough, it was so quiet and so silent, you could feel the dewdrops hit you in the face. And if you stood there long enough, I tell you, you could watch them move. That was a special event for me because my Uncle Paul was a young Marine. He went and he fought in Korea. He was at uh, Kaesan. He was a part of the Frozen Chosen. There's a book written about the warriors during the Korean War and how they suffered, and the book is entitled The Worst Winter. He came home with two purple hearts. We left that, and then we went to the World War II Memorial. It's late at night. That was special to me because my father fought in the, in the uh, World War II and for all practical purposes, as a first scout going through Hungary and Germany and all through Europe, 
For all practical purposes, he died at the age of 22 somewhere in Germany because he suffered from post-traumatic stress until the day he died in 2007. He came home with a bronze star. I know this morning that there's someone that you know that is either serving or has served, some wounded warrior, someone who paid the ultimate, ultimate price. I want us to take a moment, and I want us to bow our heads, and you offer up a prayer of thanksgiving for their service, and then I will close it out. And Father, may we never forget the price of freedom. May we never forget who we are and whose we are. And Father, we thank you for that lone warrior who took the hill called Calvary. And he paid the ultimate price. And he set us free. And we gather here today, Father, to praise him and thank him for his sacrifice. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're in a series of lessons from the book of Acts entitled, Turning the World Upside Down. And the assignment has been given to me is from Acts chapter 9 regarding a man by the name of Paul. We know him as Paul the Apostle, but we first know him as Saul of Tarsus. When we first meet him, we meet him in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, he is an assassin. In Acts chapter 7, he is holding the garments while a young man by the name of Stephen is being stoned to death. In Acts chapter 7, we watch this man Saul filled with hatred and malice against all people who are followers of this man called Jesus Christ. And he holds the garments while Stephen is stoned to death. But everything changed not long after that. Because in chapter 8 we read that he is breathing slaughter across the land. He's persecuting church. He's going into the synagogues and dragging people out who are worshiping Jesus Christ. He's taking entire families and putting them into prison. He is watching people being sentenced to death. And he is gloating in it. But then something happens. In chapter 9, and these words are going to be up on your screen. Follow along with me as I read these. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's followers of Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul answered, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. You may want to 
underline or circle that. In the Greek, it is emphatic. It is not optional. It is not a choice. It is something that you must do. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to those in Jerusalem who believe in you. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, you go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that we may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales from, fell from his eyes, and he could see again, and he got up, and he was baptized. He tells that story a little bit later when he gives his testimony before kings. In chapter 22 and verse 16, he is standing before the courts in Jerusalem defending his faith. And he tells when Ananias comes to him and he says, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. He recounts the same story. I think it's in chapter 26, maybe chapter 28. Read them both. It'll do you good. But the whole idea is... A part of his journey was his baptism. And Todd's going to be teaching a class here in the next few days on baptism. Go back and study up on it. Baptism is, incredible, is critical to your journey. The Bible says that it was so part in John chapter 3. John is telling Nicodemus when he comes and asks him about the kingdom. He says, Nick, I want you to understand that unless you're born again of the water and the spirit, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up and convicts the people of the sin in their life, the people cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says in verse 38 and following, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, Paul says, For we are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And I think it's tragedy that we have minimized the beauty of this event. Baptism is not a work that you perform. It is something that is done to you. Baptism is a testimony of the grace of God. Baptism is faith before a lost world. Baptism announces to the world, I am a follower of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I am his servant and I'm going to serve him till the day he comes. Baptism is important. And I want to encourage you to go back and study upon it. From that time forward, he goes out and he begins to preach. And there are three things I want to suggest to you. Paul, first of all, was a servant leader. Paul traveled over 12,000 miles by sea and by land 
preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3 and verse 8. In Romans chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I'm a debtor to all men everywhere because I must go and preach the message of God's redeeming love in verse 16. In Philippians chapter 2, he tells the brethren, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, counted not the being on equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself unto death. He emptied himself. If we as a church, if we're going to impact this island, we're going to impact it with servant leadership. We're going to impact this island with people who have emptied themselves and been filled with the Spirit of God and not the Spirit of the flesh and serving Him faithfully. In John 13, Jesus teaches an incredible lesson. His disciples are there. He comes in with a basin of water and a towel and He sits down and starts washing their feet. It isn't the feet that Jesus is concerned about it's the heart. He wants to send men and women out into the world with clean hearts. His kingdom was not about power. It was not about the power of the sword. It was about the power of love. I love the story that takes place in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is coming through a Samaritan village and two of his followers, two of his disciples are Guys by the name of James and John, they were sons of, do you remember? The sons of thunder. When you read the Bible, use your imagination. Can you see these sons of thunder? These guys, they got on these long black leather robes. And in Aramaic across the back, it says, sons of thunder. They've got tattoos up and down their arm. They have got, they've got these bandanas with skulls on it. Sons of thunder. They've got two war chariots with the whitest wheels in the Judean hills. I mean, these are the sons of thunder. And they come along. And when Jesus is going through Samaria, the people are not honoring Jesus. So they tell Jesus, God, Jesus, let James and John, we'll just call fire down from heaven and make crispy critters out of these people. Jesus said, that's not who we are. That's not what we're about. You go over to Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, he's still dealing with these guys again. James and John pulls him off to the side and says, Listen, we've been talking. We want to ask you a question. When you come in your kingdom, James wants to be the minister of defense. And I'd like to be the secretary of state. Would that be okay? Jesus said, Guys, you don't get it. The other disciples hear what's going on. They're offended because they don't have any position. And Jesus said, among the Gentiles, among the Gentile world, they lord it over the people, but not so among you. Because he who would be greatest among you is going to be your servant. And he who would be first is going to be last. And he who is last is going to be first. If we are going to turn this island upside down for Christ, it is going to take a lot of servant leadership. Oh, 10 minutes. You guys are cheating me back there at the back. <laughs> There's something about servant leadership. Servant leaders inspire. Servant leaders are given respect. Servant leaders lead with their hearts. Servant leaders' hands are dirty. Servant leaders' faces are stained with tears for the oppressed. 
Servant leaders are passionate about things sacred and things holy. They run risk. They rewrite history. And the early church turned the world upside down with the band of servant leaders. Now, I'm going to say some things I'm going to suggest to you. For you to just mull over, I'll throw it out, and then you may want to throw me out. There was no ecclesiastical order in the early church. There was no hierarchy. There was no clergy. There was no laity. That was the creation of man at the end of the second century. It was not the creation of God. It was a product from human hearts. And it grew to power to finally you come to the 15th and 16th century during the Reformation movement. And they had become so hierarchical, so, so corrupt, and so political, and so strong that they tried to control every member in the cathedrals, in the houses of worship. And if you did not agree with those who were in power, you were accused of apostasy, you were called a heretic, and you would be stoned to death, or you would be drowned in a river, or you would be executed. There was a lot of pushing and shoving that was going on that was just normal. The ecclesiastical order throughout Europe has emptied the churches. You go to Europe today and you go to the cathedrals. Sonia and I were at St. Mark's in Venice. Walked in this incredible, incredible cathedral. And I asked the guide, do people worship here anymore? He said, yeah, they worship right over there. There was space for about 40 people. You know what the cathedrals are today in Europe? There are pubs, there are taverns, there are museums, there are skating rinks, there are entertainment centers. They're not houses of worship anymore. And the reason historians and researchers say is because we became so powerful at the top, we ended up creating a triangle of power, and the people down here walked out. Because they could not live out their life for Jesus Christ. It's like one guy. I, I've just finished reading a book called Church Refugees. If I was still preaching, I would require my 46 deacons to read it. And the deacons who couldn't read, I'd read it to them. But all of our elders would have it and all of our staff would read it. Because it's called Church Refugees. And it is an examination of what's happening on churches in America. In one of the stories, this is a research done by two Christian sociologists. And it tells the story of one young man who decided in his local church that he wanted to start a ministry and he was just going to go out and mow the lawns of the elderly. That sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't he? He just wants to mow lawns. Well, one of the deacons found out about it, went to him and asked him, said, who gave you permission to do that? He said, I just want to mow lawns. And so he said, well... Have you talked to pastor yet? Well, I haven't told the pastor. Pastor calls him, sets up an appointment, asks him, said, that's not a part of our mission statement. That's not a part of who we are. I talked this, this year at the beginning of the year, things we're going to do, and I didn't include that in, in our ministry. And the guy said, I just want to mow lawns. And he said, do you have a budget? He says, I'm buying the gas. Well, who are you going to include? Whoever wants to help me, I just want to mow lawns. And he said, do you have a vision statement? I don't have a vision statement. I just want to cut grass. 
Well, how does this fit in where we I don't I just want to be the hands and feet of God. He took his lawnmower and he left. And that's happening all across America. And it's not just the youth. It's the old people as well. Because they don't have the freedom of the leadership of the Spirit in their own hearts. And churches are being suffocated. It is imperative that you and I, that we be people of God. This is a true story. Four minutes. This is a true story. And the reason I know it's true is because it was told by a preacher. From Texas. In West Texas, some years ago, the governor of Texas was, was campaigning a little town outside of Lubbock. And after he finished, they naturally had a chicken dinner, you know, and they're going to have a Q&A. And uh, he was going through the lunch line, and a little lady behind there put one piece of chicken on his plate. And the governor looked at it and said, you know, I, I want two pieces of chicken. And the lady said, just one piece of chicken, sir. Move on. He said, do you know who I am? Well, she's standing behind there with those big chicken tweezers. <laughs> she's sitting back there with a hairnet about right down here, snapping those things. He said, do you know who I am? She says, no. He said, I am the governor of the great state of Texas. And she said, you know who I am? I'm the woman in charge of the chicken. Move on. <laughs> Sometimes we lose sight of people. Sometimes we lose sight of the creativity of the spirit in the individual heart. We have got to be a people who are serving. The best advertisement of our church on this island is for people to say, stay away from that community church. If you go there, they take their faith seriously. They're living it out. They're honoring their God. They're faithful to their Lord. And if, you, if you're going to be a member of that church, you better be ready to wear a safety helmet and a seatbelt when you come to their worship because they expect God to show up. The early church turned the world upside down with servant leadership. Secondly, Paul was uncompromising with the truth. Two minutes Jesus said in John 8 and verse 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This island needs to be free. And it is not going to be made free with any theological dribble that is coming out a lot of our cemeteries, seminaries today. People need to hear about Christ. People need to hear about discipleship. People need to hear about giving their lives to the Lord totally. People need to know that he's coming again. Political correctness has infected our nation and it's infecting our churches. And it's time that the people of God, we go back, we get the word of God, we follow the, the, the direction of God, and we live out. I love John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, the disciples come to Jesus and he's been talking about discipleship and he's telling the people that unless you... Eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's using metaphors here. And he's basically saying, unless you participate in my life, you'll have nothing to do with me. Well, the disciples come to Jesus and he says, you know, 
could you kind of back off a little bit on that? You know, we got a good crowd here today. We got a lot of people looking. So, so let's don't run them away. And Jesus said, guys, let me tell you something. Unless people are willing to participate in my life, my death, and my resurrection, they'll have nothing to do with me. And then John 12, many of them followed after him no more. He never waters down the truth. And then finally, Paul finished strong. He's an old man in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's writing words of encouragement to a young man by the name of Timothy. He calls him his son in the gospel. He's passing the torch off to him. He's in a Roman prison. He's about to be beheaded. And he says, Timothy, you preach the word. And you be urgent in season, out of season. You reprove, you rebuke, and you exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come. Well, men are going to have itching ears, and they're going to heap to themselves teachers after their own lusts. You stay true to the truth. And then he said, the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me in that day, and not to me only, but to all who would love his appearing. Paul finished strong. I'm saying that because on this island, there are probably a few of you who are retired. And some of you are looking forward to retirement. And some of you are just flat tired. <laughs> this is a beautiful island. And this is the place where you can improve your golf swing, catch some big red, Enjoy a lot of parting, enjoy the creativity, but it's also a very easy place to lose your soul. Finish strong. If you're a member of this church, pick up the towel, go to work, serve. If we're going to make a difference for Jesus on this island, then we must work together. There was a little girl sitting on a curb outside of Chicago. She was, she was from the, across the track. She was a poor child, and she was weeping. And Jesus walks up, sits down beside her and says, Hey, hey, sunshine, what's wrong? She says, I want to get into that church, and they won't let me in. And Jesus said, I know how you feel. I've been trying to get into that church all my life, and they won't let me in either. Christ is here. Let's live him in our lives. Let's set the example for our kids. Let's honor the king. And let's applaud his coming. Finish strong. Let's pray together. While I offer this prayer, we're going to have some men over here around the cross. And if you need the prayers, if you'd like to just come and receive some encouragement, they will join you over here in prayer. 
These are the words that I want to leave with us today that will help us in life. Fathers, your church, we pray that, that we will never forget that love is patient, that love is kind, that it does not envy, it is, does not boast. Remind us, Father, that it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, Father, and it's not self-seeking. Remind us, Father, that it is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. That love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. And Father, remind us, may we never forget that there are three things in life that really matter. Faith, hope, and love. And so, Father, may we be servant leaders. May we honor your truth. And may we finish strong. And ultimately, give us the strength to turn this island right side up for you. In the name of Christ, amen.